what if I hadn't gone to the door? And what would have happened if I didn't recognize the sound that a bolt makes being slid forward into its place? What if when I called out his name, he pulled the trigger? But thank God, when he heard my name, he had enough trust in me. That was one thing. He always trusted me. Maybe it was because I had been a Marine. I don't know. But he opened the door, and I could tell in his eyes what he was going to do. It was, it was so plain. But he trusted me, and he put the weapon down. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org, and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Some of us joined the Marine Corps. Some of us joined the Navy, maybe the National Guard or Army. I'm with one person who's done pretty much all of those things. Charlotte Ayers from... Beaufort, South Carolina is with us today. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Scott. And what I've mentioned about uh, having joined lots of different services, Charlotte is a Marine and a Naval Reservist and also worked as a captain in the South Carolina State Guard. I sure did. I don't know if we want to mention your age or not, but... Oh, I'm proud of that. I'm 89. We bumped into Charlotte at the High Ground Veterans Memorial Park in Nielsville. Nielsville is your hometown, right? That is. I was born and raised here in Nielsville on East 9th Street. Really? How many kids in the family? There was five of us, and then mom and dad, and two grandmothers. We all lived together. Now, you had a military history in your family or a lot of people involved in the military in your family? Uh, definitely. My dad uh, was a master sergeant with the Wisconsin National Guard, and when they were federalized in 1940, uh, he left for the Louisiana Maneuvers. And then in April 42, uh, the unit was shipped to Australia to serve in the South Pacific. He spent two and a half years in the South Pacific, and uh, before we ever saw him again when he came home after four and a half years of being gone with the service. 
not only were you in the service that long and that many times, but you also were married to a person in the service. And we'll talk about that some more along the line, but uh, tell us about that too, if you would. Okay, that's great. Yeah. No, I also had, uh, before I enlisted, my older brother Don had enlisted, and he was in Korea when I enlisted. And a younger brother had uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. He was a jet mechanic, and shortly after that, he would be on his way to Korea. And um, I served during the Korean War stateside. During that Mm -hmm. period, I was at Camp Lejeune. How long did you spend in the Marine Corps? I spent five years in the Marine Corps. Sometimes I think I should have stayed longer, but uh, I met a Marine, and that was it. You get married, and and you, you go with him with his career. He wasn't always right with you either, but he did some traveling and no, himself. He he also had his tours of duty, Okinawa, Vietnam. When he was overseas, the ch- three children we had, myself, uh, we had a home in Buford because we liked Buford. So we, the kids and I would stay in Buford when he was gone. He came back from Vietnam, and were things a little bit different? The Marine that uh, I was married to and left us to go to Vietnam on 15 April 1966 was not the man that returned to us in July of 1967. It was a very stressful, hard time. It was a time before PTS was really recognized and there was no treatment, no nothing out there, no support groups, nothing like there is now, thank heavens. What brought us to understand PTS and started to recognize it? What happened? I what honest, changed? I honestly don't know. I, I, get, I, I imagine the suicide started and so many young men showing up with all these problems, psychological. I have a word for it when he was going through it. I said he was haunted by the demons in the dark of the attic of his mind. And that's how I felt these demons would take over. It was a horrible time. We'd go for help and they'd say, Charlotte, he'll adjust. He'll be fine. He'll be with the kids. He's with you. It'll all work out. Just bear with it. Go with it. When he thinks you're the enemy in the middle of the night, he'll be fine in the morning. You just deal with it. And I did. I dealt I dealt with it. But even with myself, I thought it was all behind me. Fifty years later, uh, it's come to the surface again for me. He has passed. He, he, uh, he passed, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, natural causes. But there was a time that... If I were to write a book, I would name it, What If? What if I had continued washing the dishes at the sink that day? What if I didn't wonder why the house was so quiet? What if the kids hadn't been at school? What if I hadn't walked down the hall, down to our bedroom? What if I hadn't seen the closed door on the small bathroom off of the bedroom? What if I hadn't gone to the door and what would have happened if I didn't recognize the sound that a bolt makes being slid forward into its place? 
What if when I called out his name, he pulled the trigger? But thank God, when he heard my name, he had enough trust in me. That was one thing. He always trusted me. Maybe it was because I had been a Marine. I don't know. But he opened the door, and I could tell in his eyes what he was going to do. It was, it was so plain. But he trusted me, and he put the weapon down, and he let me lead him on into the living room. And I held him, and I wanted him to talk about it, but he never talked about the war. Mm -hmm. He never really ever talked about the war to me, and uh, it was hard. I went to uh, the pastor, well, I took him to the pastor at our church, and um, we were sitting there, and I told the pastor that we needed help, my husband needed help desperately. I started to talk, and and then I said, he, he, you know, Vietnam and all, and I don't remember all I said. And the pastor said, well, you know, I think a good idea would be if he, you come to church Sunday, and Al, his name was Al, he said, you walk down the aisle and face the congregation and confess all your sins. And I screamed at the pastor, and I said, he doesn't have any sins to confess. This man is sick and needs help. And then I mentioned the weapon, and the pastor threw his hands in the air and said, oh, no, no, I can't help you. Please leave. Oh, you must leave. I haven't been back to a church, inside a church, since that day. Anyway, we dealt with it. He was good with the kids. He was good when his buddy saw him. He, he I, I don't know if it was an act. Nobody knew anything was wrong with him when they talked to him, and he saw his friends on Paris Island. That's where we were living. But then we got a phone call from a real good buddy of his from California. He, he was stationed in California. We were great friends, his wife and his children. He said, hey, Char, I've got orders to Camp Lejeune. I'm going to go to school in Lejeune. How about if I stop by for a weekend with you folks? God bless that buddy. He came, and him and Al went to the Thousand Paris Island, had a staff NCO club. Yep. It's a great place. <laughs> and he, the two of them went that night. And when they got back, Joe took me aside, and he said, Char, you're right, he desperately needs help. And he said, I'm going to figure out something to help you. So the next day, he said, I got it figured out. He says, you know, Al sometimes thinks that you might be on drugs. I wasn't, but his mind, somebody mm -hmm. must be doing something to him. Even though he trusted me, maybe I was doing something. He said, let's pretend that you need to go to the ER. You're sick. Or I said, well, let's not go the drug route. He said, well, whatever, just make up something. And we need to take you to the ER at the Naval Hospital, which was just down the road. So the three of us went to the ER at the Naval Hospital. And we went in, and I told 
the corpsman on duty, my symptoms, I don't remember what I made up, that I was having problems and depressed. and Well, that was true, that's for sure. While they were talking to me, Joe left. At that time, there was only one psychiatrist uh, at the hospital, but he was there for the recruits. Uh, he handed, uh, took care of the recruits at PI and those in the hospital. But Joe hunted him down, unbeknownst to us, and uh, the doctor came to the ER, and he started talking to me. Joe had told him what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then he said to Al, why don't you come with me and tell me about your wife's problems? And Al went with him, and after a while, quite a while, we were there in the ER. They uh, they came back, uh, well, Joe, Joe had gone off somewhere. He didn't want to face Al. Al figured out what had happened. The doctor came out, and Al was very calm. That's one thing. He knew how to follow orders. <laughs> and the doctor had convinced him uh, to go to the Naval Hospital. That was They had one in Charleston, and it's there no longer. The doctor convinced him that he did need help. And that was the best thing for him. So they had his records, and the corpsmen were running around like mad to take care of him. And I'm bawling my eyes out all the time. I'm in the ER. So they were leading him out to the the ambulance to take him. And I remember running out the door, and the, the driver had gotten inside, and I said, please, please. He's got such pride. Don't make him lay down in the back. Please let him sit up in front with you. And they were so nice. They said, come on, buddy, sit up front with us. I think that meant a lot to me, and I know it did to him. He didn't have to be laying in the back. Then Joe took me back to the house. We had called a neighbor to stay with the kids, but he was running late. He had to get to Lejeune. That was Sunday. And it was such a weight off my shoulders that, God, I bless that man, his buddy, mm-hmm. Joe, for coming. It was it was just, it was meant to be maybe that he had orders for Lejeune and we were just down the road in, in yep. Milford. So he did get help. I'll never forget the name of the doctor, Dr. Harris. It was a long time, but the Marine Corps was good to him. He stayed in. He was able. He came back. He came back. He was was Al. And he had been to Navy stations after that. After that, we were 8th and High in Washington, D.C. He had a platoon at the parade. God, he was a good Marine. He was an instructor at the University of, of Virginia in Charlotte still. Weapons instructor and history. But he had come back, he did, and he was able to retire. And he was at the air station in Buford when he retired. Thank God he had a good buddy. He had a lot of good buddies, but this one was special. You have a lot of Vietnam vets who still aren't back. And even in older ages, it's still worthwhile in my eyes. Do you believe that? Uh, to get to get some help yet? Nobody should have to go to war. These young men and women now, it's horrible. 
Uh, there's no description, and every war seems to get worse than the last one. The way of fighting the wars has changed from war to war. Uh, whether you have the home front support, which Vietnam did not. Uh, let me just say an instance there. When we were in the university in uh, Charlottesville, the kids were still little, but uh, one of the uh, instructor's wives, military instructor's wives, had offered to teach our little girls ballet for free, just bring them in on such and such a day. So I would take the girls and their little brother. And when we were walking across the street to go to the university, I warned them, I told them ahead of time, I said, now you're going to see a lot of people screaming and yelling outside of the university, the building we're going to where daddy is and uh, where you're going to take ballet. But I want you to know these signs they're carrying and they're throwing this red stuff and saying it's blood and they're saying baby killers and screaming terrible things. I want you to know they're making a movie, an awful movie we'll never go to see, but they're just acting. So don't you be scared or anything. Just hold tight to mommy and hold each other's hands and we'll be okay. We're going to see daddy. I couldn't tell them what was going on. They were still too young. But yes, today the help is out here now. And one great place is the high girl. Boy, have I learned a lot there what they'll help, help veterans with. I've attended some of the classes myself. It, it's a great, great place to go. Hey, guys out there, your buddies are there. You need to talk. They'll listen. You got, you've got help available. There wasn't when my husband needed it desperately, but there, it's there now. Please reach out. They're your buddies. They speak your language and they'll listen to you. Just be among them for a while. Go to the high ground if you're in the area. If you're not real close and you hear about it, go online if somebody tells you about it. Please, 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 please. You need it. Your family needs it. Your children need it. Your parents need you. They want you. They want you who you are. Please get help. I think that... <laughs> You hear about the buddy system, and you know all branches of service, you never leave anybody behind. They're not going to leave you behind. They're going to help you. I didn't mean to get on a, on a stage here and, and talk like that. I guess mm -hmm. my memories are going full throttle, but that's what I got to say to anybody listening. Get help if you need help. You recognize and down in your heart. You're not who you used to be, but you can be again. Please get help. Find a buddy there. They're at the high ground. They're waiting for you. I guess got it. I guess I've got to send my piece more than I thought I would. Your piece is important. Your piece is very important, Charlotte. You did your own time in the Marine Corps. And that was a different kind of era compared with now for oh, women definitely. in the service. Definitely. Um, what kind of work did you do? Uh, well, after boot camp, uh, I was assigned to clerk typist school, which they don't have anymore. You've never heard of clerk typist school. And it was held at PI, Paris Island. 
I graduated from boot camp 15 December and I had 10 day leave so I got to go home Wisconsin for Christmas and then I reported back to PI for clerk typist school mm-hmm. and then my orders were for Camp Lejeune and when I got to Camp Lejeune I was assigned to the base adjutant's office so I worked in the base sergeant major's office. I had a great job. Um, I, uh, the offices of the base sergeant major and the adjutant and the base general were all, you know, connected. So I would help fill in because I, I had taken shorthand. You don't do shorthand anymore, but they did then, 50, 53. So I would fill in when the adjutant secretary was gone. I did a lot of work in secret and confidential files. You know, mm-hmm. locked up into in a room. But the funny thing is, I thought, why are they doing this now? I was redacting from documents information from World War II documents, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, this that was long ago. It was only five years before the Korean War. But yeah. my nineteen-year-old mind at that time, I had turned nineteen. I enjoyed the work. I really did. And uh, when you reported into Lejeune. We were called WMs then. Now we're we're Marines, but at that time you were a WM, women Marine. Mm-hmm. Everybody was assigned. Uh, Fifty-one. My brother returned. Uh, Fifty-three. I'm sorry. Returned from his tour of duty in Korea, and I knew he had orders for Camp Lejeune. I didn't know when he was going to report in because he was on leave in Wisconsin after that. And uh, my friend Vera and I had gone to the base theater. Off duty time, if you left the barracks, the women's barracks, you had to uh, see the duty and sign out where you were going and what time you left and what time you'd be back. Uh, my mom loved that policy. <laughs> <laughs> we went to the theater, we're standing in line, and all of a sudden there's hands across my eyes and a voice saying, Guess who, baby sister? And it was my brother, Don. And it was wonderful. He was there with two of his buddies. It was a terrific year. They had gone to the barracks to find me. And, of course, the duty could tell me where I was. Yeah. So they located me. And um, one of his buddies, that they were in Korea together, one of his buddies, Harry, took a liking to my friend Vera. Three years later, they were married. And they'd been, you know, our friends for 70 years till both of them oh. passed last year. But for 70 years, I had such a good good friendship, all of us. I enjoyed all the positions I've held and the jobs I had. Including an instructor, administrative instructor? Uh, that was um, after Lejeune. I had orders for independent duty, I&I staff, inspector, instructor staff at uh, a Marine Corps Reserve unit. That period of time, uh, the women and men were still separated but there was a classification platoon of, of women that was attached to the 2nd Engineer Battalion at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland. Great duty. That year, I drove myself to Paris Island, and the captain escorted the platoon by train. That was the year that their drill instructor was this handsome, tall, handsome, single Marine. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> and that's how I met my husband, that we yeah. married six months later. And, of course, back then, 
the marriage kind of ends your Marine Corps career. That that was about the time I thought, you know, I thought before I met him, I thought maybe I'll leave the Marine Corps. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a, a flight attendant? That sounded great to me. But then I met him, and marriage looked a whole lot better to me. <laughs> and back then, you could get married, but. At one time, you had to leave the service. If you were pregnant, definitely. Out you went. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I left the service in October of that year, 57, and uh, he flew to Wisconsin, and we were married in Wisconsin after knowing each other for a very short time. Hadn't been together other than during that time when he was their drill instructor and, and mm -hmm. telephone calls. And then I stopped to see him before I drove back to Wisconsin. And he came up, flew up in December. We were married in December of 57. That wasn't the end of your military life. <laughs> Other than being, of course, married, continuing to be married to a Marine. 45 years old, you went back at it. Tell me about that. What was that about? I got to correct you. I was 47. Oh, I'm sorry, 47. That's okay. <laughs> I was 47. Uh, when I left the Corps, and we were living in, in Buford, he was still a drill instructor at that time, uh, there wasn't a Marine Corps Reserve unit, and I was really disappointed. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Naval Reserve unit, and then some years later, quite a few years later, I'd known my neighbors were in the Naval Reserve, and they'd say, Charlotte, if you join now, you get enough years in to retire. So... I went ahead and went down to, to enlist. I was 47. And at that time, the policy was they were not taking prior military. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. They were taking people, civilians with no military background, in as E-4s. I was an E-5. I lost two pay grades. I only could come in as an E-3, a seaman. And I thought, what the heck, I can do it. So I went in as a seaman, lost two pay grades. But at the end of it, I retired as a yeoman chief petty officer. So I did great. I did fine. The Navy was good to me. I loved it. I was, I was happy to be back with the military. And um, the kids, the youngest girl was 11, my two weeks of I liked it up and down the East Coast for most of the two weeks. And mm -hmm. then there was openings for um, annual training overseas, not for two weeks, but they would like somebody to stay for 30 days. Mm -hmm. So the Navy was really good to me. Three times to Germany, a month at a time, in Stuttgart, <laughs> uh, Germany, with the U.S. and European Command. And that was made up of uh, armed forces from all the countries throughout Europe. I made some great friends. But there was a funny instance with the uh, Navy uniform. Nobody recognizes uh, the, the, uh, the anchors. They think you're an officer. Mm -hmm. so, and, and we were told, hey, if they salute you, salute them back. <laughs> and, you know, so here I am, a, a petty officer, and then a first class and then a chief petty officer being saluted and uh, but we would just salute and go on our way <laughs> but uh, that that was great uh, you know 
One year, one year I worked in intelligence and in Germany in, in intelligence and messaging. The armed forces had taken over the German Nazi barracks and made them into recreation areas. I'm sure a lot of you all know about that. And uh, the buildings we worked in, it, it, in my mind, I, I could envision the World War II movies mm-hmm. where up in the 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 attic, you know, with the big, you know, like the fourth story of the barracks up, and we would be working in the attic, and I, I could just see when the colonel would come in and he would be pointing at the chalkboard about different things happening. It, it was a, a winter exercise, one mm-hmm. of the big ones I was in. And uh, in my mind, it was just like but like being back in World War II. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, naval personnel that I worked with were from all over, all over the United States and Europe. And it was great duty. I loved it. Like they say on the television commercials, but wait, we're not <laughs> done yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I, I retired from the Naval Reserve and um, as a yeoman chief petty officer. And then when I was 65, I became a volunteer. I joined the South Carolina State Guard. Now, the South Carolina State Guard uh, is not a militia. We did not carry weapons. We were a backup the South Carolina National Guard, if they were called to federal service, active service, we would be the backup for the state in the communities. Mm-hmm. We were not a militia. Uh, we had advanced training in all FEMA courses, federal emergency management. We did weekend drills at different bases and Paris Island. Uh, we went everywhere throughout the state. Some of our duties were as escorts at funerals. Uh, in fact, one of the big one was, maybe some of you will remember, I don't remember the year, uh, when they did, found they were doing uh, a building, they were building and excavating, and they found all of the Massachusetts Company of Black Union soldiers. And the decision by the higher-ups was made to exhume all of them and bury them in the Buford National Cemetery. And there was a huge funeral procession downtown Buford. The crowds came out to witness this wonderful event that was happening. Oh, I got chills thinking about it. And we were, we were escorts for that. And we also did uh, traffic control and escorted them to the National Cemetery for their burial in a very special place in the cemetery. Oh, that was impressive. We did uh, traffic control. Uh, We were in many parades. We had a real good unit, and um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I even enjoyed I got a great picture of me taking on one of our master sergeants in self-defense, believe it or not. (laughs) I have a look on my face that, oh, wow. I thought, Charlotte, my word. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I guess age is what you make it because I just kept going, and I liked, I liked it, but I could only stay five years because I joined at 65, and the mandatory retirement was 70. 
So uh, that that brought it in, but I was in the Army uniform, so I've worn the Marine uniform, the Navy uniform, and the Army uniform, and and I treasure every every year, every day that I I, I served serving our country. I've loved. It. I'm proud. Something tells me that if they'd let you, you'd still be wearing that a uniform of some sort. I probably well, I were, was with the USO for quite a while. Iraq and Afghanistan war. Uh, when all that started, I was with the USO, and I we would be at the air station, the Marine Corps air station in Buford, uh, seeing the guys off when they were boarding their flight to leave. And uh, of course, you have the food and the treats, and you talk with their families. And and I remember one one time we had a great big box of those. Oh, what were the little toy bears and stuff that uh, kids were playing with? I can't remember their their name, but there was a hero bear. He's about eight to eight inches high, in combat uniform, uh, the green and, and and tan one. And uh, one guy came forward. He's, can I have one of those? And he took it and put it in the pocket on the sleeve of his his uh, uniform. And pretty soon. One other would come up, then a group of two, and those guys all left with this little teddy bear, teeny tiny teddy bear, which their kids, you know, the married yeah. ones with their kids. Uh, the kids were getting them too, but it was so cute. These guys are so young, and what responsibility they're all given. It, it's just amazing when you think of the submarines, the airplanes, the trucks, the tanks, the, the, I mean, the weapons. And look at the, how young they are. Life decisions, too. Oh, were they making decisions. It, it just, and they're training, and when training kicks in and they know exactly what to do in the spur of the moment, it's amazing. But does anybody out there in the civilian world give a real thought about what is going on out there, how these young guys and girls are protecting us, are saving us, are Keeping our freedom, God, they're so young. But yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. I loved talking with them. It was a great time, and we'd see them off, and then we'd get a call sometimes in the middle of the night, and, and away we'd go. We'd get to the air station and welcome them back home. That was a happy time with their families there and their little kids running out to see Daddy come back. Yeah. Charlotte? This has been a pure joy for me. Thank you for sharing with us, and thank you for the, your great messages about getting out there and getting help when you need it and admitting it. Oh wow! I sure mean it. I sure mean it. I think this has been kind of therapeutic for me. I guess I needed to get some things off my mind. God, Scott, you're easy to talk. <laughs> Talking to, I didn't know I was going to talk about this. I, not how deep it went, <laughs> went. But well, I, I'm proud to have served. I'm so proud to have served. I loved being a Marine. I enjoyed being in the Navy. I really enjoyed the Army, too. So You had it all. Thanks again. I thank you for listening. And as always, if you find yourself in a crisis situation... As Charlotte says, do not hesitate. Find help, including dialing 988-PROMPT-1. That's 988-PROMPT-1 if you're feeling that you're in any kind of mental crisis.
On behalf of everybody at Stigma Free Vet Zone, I'm Scott Schultz, and remember, this is educational, not stigmatizing. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.